Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I have a friend, Dr. Mahdi N. Crabtree, Associate Professor of African American Studies at the College of Charleston. And she is on to discuss her brand new book, My Soul is a Witness, The Traumatic Afterlife of Lynching. Dr. Crabtree, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for um, having me on today to talk about my book. Of course, of course. And so um, to begin, can you actually read an excerpt from your book that really encapsulates uh, for future readers and current listeners um, the stakes and importance of your book? Sure. Um, I'll begin with uh, an excerpt from the last chapter, chapter six on the blues. And to kind of make the excerpt make sense, I have to read a bit of a Yusuf Komunyaka poem, which is the um, epigraph for that chapter. And then I'll go ahead and read from um, later in the chapter. So this is Komunyaka. In the days when a man would hold a swarm of words inside his belly, nestled against his spleen, singing. In the days of night riders, when life tongued a reed till blues and sorrow song called out, of the deep night, another man done gone, another man done gone. And that's from Yusuf Komunyaka's Blue Dementia. To understand how the blues as a metaphor make trauma and justice legible in the African-American experience requires a return to both the blues as such, the heavy near despair produced by life's troubles, large and small, and the blues sensibility, a posture toward life. Traumatic events have stalked African-Americans for centuries. And out of this collective experience, Black people have forged what Howard Thurman called, quote, tools of the spirit to cut a path through the wilderness of their despair, end quote. These tools include the blues sensibility. Imani Perry calls these tools a precious inheritance that guides Black people as they, quote, learn not only to grieve, but also to chat with death. Turn over this reality of loss in your hands, mix it into the clay of your living, and learn to live with the ache, end quote. Perry warns of the destructive potential of trauma, grief, and the daily onslaught of racism that, like a chronic disease, lingers and nags and flares up. Harboring the swarm for too long can lead to lashing out with violence, bearing the toll of unprocessed grief in one's body, varying pain with drugs and other escapes, and succumbing to soul-crushing despair. Only by coming to terms with the blues as such can people get to the more important stuff of living. On the level of individual trauma and community trauma, the blues sensibility has offered Black people tools of the spirit for processing traumatic events. The lynching of a relative, the terror that lasted for generations in a community, the structural inequalities entrenched by lynching and white supremacy more generally. The very narrative structure and mood of the African-American lynching memories recovered in this book have been steeped in the blue sensibility. In one way or another, they say to the powerful, to those set on the destruction of Black people, you may try to destroy me, but I will create beauty out of this horror you perpetrate. African-Americans sought out the protective cover of the blue sensibility when, like Jesse Pennington, the repressed memories of lynching or harrowing escapes from lynch mobs 
to keep their souls intact, or when, like the Head family, they shielded their children from the most disturbing details of local lynchings. The masked double meanings and adept evasions of the blues found expression in the supernatural stories that families passed down, whether about the ghost of a lynching victim haunting an Alabama courthouse or sores that spread on the arms of a known lyncher. When memories of lynching and murder became too much for Minnie Weston to bear, she knew how to keep the pain at bay echoing the blues hollerers who shouted away their blues. The assertion of dignity in the face of practice humiliations in the blues could be detected in Judge Head's refusal to give up his dream of farming his own land after his brother's horrific death by lynching. And blue notes enveloped artistic renderings of Black mourning with affirmations of the preciousness of Black life. Lynching as a form of terrorism targeted entire Black communities and touched Black people across the nation. And though tra traumatic events don't necessarily inflict the greatest or the longest lasting harm upon those nearest to lynching victims, the pain was often sharpest and most devastating for those who knew and loved them. Survivors and witnesses further removed from the victim, neighbors, grandchildren born of decades after lynching, people from neighboring towns passing through and seeing a lynched body, strangers hundreds of miles away reading about lynching in the news, also could experience intense traumatic reactions to lynching, though in general, they could more readily find the words to bring their memories to the surface. Marion Hayes Turner's great-grandchildren rarely heard their grandmother and Turner's only daughter speak of their lynchings, much less the pain she endured living in the wake of their deaths. But they could see their grandmother's suffering when she, they asked about her parents. They saw her become withdrawn and silent. They saw their grandfather swoop in to shield her from their questions. Her pain was too much to disclose, especially to such young children, curious but unprepared for the burden she carried. Though only these faint outlines of her trauma reach us in the present, her grandchildren's memories reveal the protective, the family's protective love and the strategies she cultivated for stowing away these traumatic memories, most of the time anyway, where they were undetectable to her grandchildren. Would she have said her strategies for living with and through the trauma of her parents' lynchings drew from the blue sensibility? Probably not, but she seemed fluent in the language of the blues in making the afterlife of lynching livable. Thank, thank you for uh, reading that gripping passage. Um, can you can you tell us why you chose that uh, particular passage? Um, I it was actually a little bit difficult to find the right passage uh, in part because um, there are a few different interventions that I make in the book, but I think it's important to understand um, the variety of ways in which African American Southerners dealt with the afterlife of lynching. Um, and to not be reductive about understanding that. So I wanted to talk about haunting and silence and um, per the protectiveness of those kinds of stories or the not telling of those stories. Um, and I think that understanding that range helps to uh, break us free <laughs> from this tendency to reduce black life to either suffering or resistance. And it allows us to see the richness of Black life um, in the way it's actually lived. And it also makes me think as well um, about some of the um, some of the discourses um, 
in African-American studies and African-American history and, you know, the question about resistance, you know, and, and agency, if, even in another way, going back to Johnson's uh, article. That was, that was a minute ago, too, I just realized. Yeah. <laughs> that on, I need to have him on here to talk about that. You know, thank you for planting the seeds, uh, the idea. Um, but, um, but, yeah, and it also makes me think, too, about your own journey to this particular topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a, as a quick pivot here, can you tell us about um, your own journey to My Soul as a Witness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my my journey here was very much shaped by the kind of intellectual touchstones um, that I have. Um, uh, clearly, the work of W.E.B. Du Bois as, for me, like a model of what it means to be a good Black Studies scholar, but in particular, someone who does African-American history um, was part of what got me here. Um, I've been deeply touched by the works of James Baldwin and Toni Morrison. Um, And uh, as someone who was a student of David Blight in undergrad, I have a deep appreciation for memory studies. And um, all of these things together have kind of contributed to what this project does, which is it talks about haunting and memory and trauma um, and does so with a focus on the African-American experience. Uh, Baldwin was particularly important to me because um, he writes so beautifully about the blues. Um, uh, This past week I assigned to my students in my Baldwin seminar uh, the uses of the blues and blues from Mr. Charlie together. And so there's... um, that that kind of blues element that I get from you know Baldwin and Ellison and Albert Murray and folks like that, but then also his short story "Going to Meet the Man" really kind of planted the seed for this project because in that story, um, which is about a white um, deputy sheriff in the Jim Crow South who is not sure how to deal with black protest, um, and he's so worried about what it is doing to his sense of self to see black resistance that for comfort he goes back to this childhood memory of a lynching and i as someone who does african-american history and black studies wasn't going to tell that story but wanted to think about what are the long lasting impacts of lynching on black communities how did it shape um, everyday living for black people to the extent that it did. And so um, it was through the kind of the impacts of influences of memory studies, uh, what it means to do black studies well, um, how to talk about haunting and memory and, and racial violence that, that I got to the, the subject um, of, of, of the book. And um, certainly the writing of it was deeply inspired by the good writers who I like to read while I'm writing as well people like Morrison, people like Baldwin, people like T.J. Cole, you know, folks like that, Monty Perry, you know. Yeah, and and let's Terry here for a minute. I, I I didn't have this originally in in our conversation, but I also noticed, um, if I remember your CV correctly, I tried to do a little research beforehand. Um, you've had some experience with uh, the African-American Studies uh, Department at Princeton, where uh, Perry and also uh, Eddie Glaude, who I believe wrote a blurb for the book too. Um, so can you also talk about the influence and even uh, Toni Morrison being at as well, um, Princeton too. So can you actually uh, briefly 
Terry here on the impact of your experiences um, at Princeton, but also even just the people that you just mentioned before um, with Terry, Claude, and, and, and even Morrison too. Yeah, I think, and, and the other person I have to add in here was my mentor at um, uh, Princeton, who was Tara Hunter. So um, they were all really, really helpful in help in in kind of the the final revisions for this for this project. Uh, one of the things that I loved getting kind of hearing from Tara Hunter uh, was when she told me that I shouldn't be writing for the worst possible reader, <laughs> which is a tempting thing to do when you're writing about lynching because so much of what has come earlier in the writing about lynching has been, you know, about white violence for good reason. And I think a lot of the reason um, that we, the focus has been on white violence is that there's been almost like a, a kind of society-wide gaslighting of black people's suffering. Right. And so people want to make sure, you know, what that violence looked like. And she was very um, helpful in giving me a framework to thinking about what it means to not write for the worst reader, the person who doesn't believe, right? That the lynching was was as bad as it was, or the person who doesn't believe um, that, um, that there was something potentially redemptive um, to tell in the afterlife of lynching. And so I think that that was really important for me um, to, to think through with with um, Professor Hunter. Um, and same thing with with conversations with uh, with Eddie and, and, and with Imani Perry, like uh, I had a, it was during COVID that I had um, the, the fellowship. So like some of our conversations got cut a little short because of you know the whole world shutting down. But they, I, I remember having these conversations that just gave me a sense of like how to think through um, how to organize the book, um, you know, affirming my decision to have these book chapter titles that are mostly one word, right? You know, these, these kind of very um, bare bones, but direct thematic, um, you know, chapter heading, uh, chapter titles. Um, so that there, there was a lot that I, that I learned from that experience. And I think the, the, and this is something that I think any fellowship can do for you, but it reminded me of how much I love writing, how much I love the process of revising. Um, because, you know, when you're teaching all the time, you sometimes lose that, um, the time to do that. And so it was really wonderful to have the ability to really focus on the life of the mind, have a community to do that thinking with. Um, and to get to the stuff that I really love doing. I love teaching too, but I really love writing. Um, and so it was really nice to get back to that. So once again, let's Terry in another place for a second. Um, you talked about uh, revision and, and your uh, love of it, if I, if I got the term right. Um, what was your revision process actually like for my soul this week? Uh, well, re revision for me is important because um, I find that writing the first draft is where I begin to work out my ideas um, and revision is where I make them sharper, where I um, really do the work of um, making the book feel like a book. And so um, I enjoy that because I think it's um, 
it, it it's really about thinking at the end of the day. Um, and so for this book, uh, it went through several revisions, several actually pretty uh, serious revisions. And um, I'm really glad that the last revision um, happened when it did, because I, um, as much as I would have loved to have the book come out earlier, it was nice to be able to do the last revision after Kevin Quashie's book black um on um black aliveness right comes out um it was nice to be able to write uh parts of the book one when uh imani perry's breathe had been out um and my um late um undergraduate advisor jeff ferguson's book of essays came out also in in um 2021 and so it was really nice to be able to have conversations with those scholars um, because the revision process was a little bit more extended. Uh, and I think that it made the book sharper, better, um, deeper in its analysis. So I, I I mean, you have to stop at some point, right? You got to turn in the manuscript at some point. Um, but I think that that's one of the things that I like about revision. And I think that's one of the reasons why as a writer, um, the essay is my favorite form because it's more, it invites conversation. Um, it's definitive, but it isn't, doesn't have that same finality to it. And um, I think essays um, allow for that kind of flexibility. And that's, that's something that I think revision is allowing you to do too. You're continuing the conversation, even if it's with yourself. <laughs> and so you had mentioned in uh, two uh, answers ago, um, about your choice um, to have each chapter be effectively one or two words, um, or the first one being four. So first chapter, um, well, introduction, reckoning, first chapter in anatomy of lynching, second silence, third haunting, fourth violence, fifth protest, sixth the blues, and then an epilogue. So take us into the decision to why you chose these particular uh, chapter titles. Um, yeah, I, I I think that there was, uh, since the blues is one of the central metaphors in the book, I wanted a sound-related progression. So we started with silence and then ended with the blues. And there was like, you know, haunting and other things in between, but it was, it was meant to be that kind of a progression. Not because I think that that's, that linearity actually maps onto Black experiences, but that it provided a crescendo, like a natural crescendo in the progression of the chapters. Um, I also think that it's important to, um, it, when you're talking about trauma and memory, to uh, uh, be attentive to pushing back against the kind of linear narrative that we often tell it when we do history, right? Um, and uh, one of the things about trauma is that the traumatic memories come back to you, not willfully. <laughs> they often come back to you very rudely and unexpectedly. And they make the past feel like it's in the present. And so it messes with timelines, it messes with chronology. And so I wanted to um, think about um, thematically, how do I capture that without reducing um, these experiences to a kind of linear narrative as well. And so I wanted to um, map the way in which trauma and memory come back um, onto the way in which I, I told the story. Um, so there isn't like a linear progression across time. 
across the chapters because I actually see these things happening simultaneously. But I did want to think about, I really wanted to mull over what does silence mean? What does it mean for Black Southerners? What does it mean for white Southerners? And um, how is this different? And so with that, um, I think these last couple questions, I think, are a great way to get into uh, the next question. So my soul is witness is also a part of Yale University Press's New Directions in Narrative History series. Why did you choose this series for your book? Because I'm sure you had, you know, different maybe presses in mind from, you know, when you finished uh, your PhD. So so why this particular series? What, what appealed uh, to you about this series? So there are a couple things that appealed to me about the series. One was the attention to the work of historians as writers and the attentiveness to what it means to narrate the past. And I was very honored, actually, that they thought of my book in those terms, like this has a writerly sensibility to it, which was really quite flattering to have them say to me. And I, the other part of it was that um, with this particular series, um, I would get the peer review and get those that kind of feedback because it's a university press. But I also had um, line edits from the series editor, um, Aaron Sachs. And so I got um, kind of the best of both trade and university press worlds because I got the academic feedback on arguments and evidence and, you know, what who are you speaking to in the literature? And then I also got, you know, your pacing in this chapter, you know, how do we avoid didacticism? How do we say less with or say more with less? Like, how, how do we think about language? And so I got really both kinds of feedback. And that was just invaluable to me to have. And, and that's something that once you talked about, you know, the life of the mind and also like the the beauty of writing, and then I read your work too. So, so you know, it, it all matches. And so, um, because that's why for me, I um, actually, before I, before I spoke to you about bringing uh, the, the book on for the podcast series, I didn't even know about this particular uh, uh, history series from Yale University Press. And, and to your point, you know, so many people, um, typically in your in folks' second book, they go, you know, let's let's go trade, you know, let's go Beacon, let's go, you know, Knopf or, you know, uh, Norton or whatever. But, you know, you, there are some University Press arms like Yale and uh, I believe UNC um, and I believe Harvard too, that have that uh, that area for for this, and so um, you know, I know I'm not the only one who who, who li- <clears throat> excuse me listen to you. They're like, hmm, maybe, maybe, because also there are areas of the book that I could tell that it's not a standard university press series. Like there are moments, y'all, when you're reading Professor Crabtree's book that she's literally like breathe, and then next paragraph. And and so I think those can you talk to us actually about that? Actually, now that now I'm there, can you actually talk to us about that particular uh narrative choice? Um and also maybe what it means to you that through the series that you can do that, which I don't re- you don't really see from other um university press um spaces. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I did a work a book workshop, book manuscript workshop at Princeton. Um and one of the things that uh, 
uh, Callie Gross and uh, Courtney Baker gave me feedback on was um, how to deal with chapter one, which is a hard chapter to read. And it was a very hard chapter to write because it's the one place where I really describe it at great length lynching. Um, most of the rest of the book does, obviously it talks about lynching, but it's more about kind of black responses, um, black living in the wake of lynching. Um, and chapter one was hard because the page was just, it was pages and pages of describing horrific things. So um, they had suggested you know, breaking up the two stories that I focus on in that first chapter. There's the story of Jesse Washington, who was lynched in Waco, Texas, and the story of Mary Turner, who was lynched in um, Southern Georgia and in, in uh, Brooks County, Georgia. And um, I was thinking about what I would need reading this, which is breathing, like as an, a line break, <laughs> a moment to pause a moment to also reflect on not just what white people were doing, but also thinking about the black families that were being impacted by these deaths. And so in those, those, those brief kind of um, interludes, which are only about a paragraph, um, I wanted to recenter the focus on um, these black families um, because that's who I'm really ultimately going to be talking about. And I, I hope that what it does is it provides a little bit of a reprieve from what it was a very difficult chapter to write. And that I think is also a very difficult chapter to read because of the uh, violence on the page. And I also think too about, you know, to your point, the delicateness and the care um, that folks who write about uh, histories of lynching or, you know, histories of slavery and many different. Um, but I also do wonder, as a non-Black scholar who's uh, writing this particular history, um, what methods do you implement in My Soul as a Witness to ensure uh, your readers learn about the stories, as you said in, in chapter one, um, without encountering the, the worst, you know, gratuitous violence on the page? Um, so, so, so for those who are listening who are interested in how to do it, can you provide some uh, direction in, in, in kind of how, you know, you methodologically uh, encountered that? Yeah, this is something that I have thought a lot about, um, both while writing and actually I think my next book project will be taking this up much more directly. It'll be, um, what, it'll be a book of essays, and one of the essays is about the ethics of writing traumatic histories. There's also going to be a, a book or a chapter or an essay, I guess, on... Um, my subject position, right? Okay. As a non-black scholar. We'll have to make sure scholar. that you get back on for, for that one. So please, please let me know when that comes out. Yeah. So I want to think about what does it mean? What, how, how do I think about privacy, both cultural privacy and the individual privacy of the people that I write about as someone who is not part of that community? Um, and I think that these are in general things that people should be attentive to in black studies um, because of the long history of really caricatured stereotyped ways of talking about blackness because of the um you know the 
distortions of Afri- uh, th- that have been written in kind of white driven narratives of U.S. history. Um, and so I think that these are all things that we have to all of us have to be attentive to. But I think in particular, people who are not coming out of the black community, um, there has to be a special kind of attentiveness to is this any of my business? Is this something that I should be telling? Um and also questions about how do I make sure that the payoff of knowing, which is what we're supposed to do as scholars, right? Tell people things, you know, show people um, things, um, that it's worth what it might do to the reader and what it might do to the very people I'm writing about. And I think that that's a... Um, that's not a, always a perfectly clear line, but it's something that has to be considered um, because I don't want my book to be telling a story in a way that actually harms the very people whose story I'm trying to recover. Um, I don't want my book to harm the black readers who I hope will be reading the book because I need to, to sort of make some kind of a point that seems hardly worth, right? I don't think it rises to the level of justification there. So I think that, again, it's it's very subjective in certain ways, but those are the kinds of questions that I made sure that I asked. Is, it, is the potential for pain um, is the potential for harm in telling the story, does it meet that threshold of justifying knowing? And if it doesn't, either I need to change how I tell it, or maybe I don't tell it. And that and that's a and, and that is a challenge. Um, I think just in general, um, I remember um, hearing Vanessa Holden talk about surviving Southampton, and it's a question of you know, silence as well. And for for the descendant communities in Southampton County, for them to be able to survive is a showing of how silence can save folks, you know. Um, and even in terms of what happens in, in the direct wake of the Turner Revolt. Um, and so to, and so as a result of, of this line of questioning, I'm also interested to know what was actually the biggest challenge that you faced in the entire process, you know, be it writing, be it, you know, whatever area that you want to take on here. But what was the biggest challenge that you faced in, you know, making this book come come to, to life? Um, I, th- I think that the writing was difficult at times because of this, des- my desire to find, find the right balance between telling the story and uh, not doing unnecessary harm um, or unjustified harm. And um, one of the things that grounded me was um, the fact that I was I had the real um, privilege of talking to actual survivors. And so on the days when it was hard to put words on the page because, of um, you know the the horrible things I had to write, or because of the the questions I had about how I was going to be writing this, um, I always remembered that someone trusted me enough to tell me the often kind of intimate details of their family history, 
um, because they thought I would be able to do it, you know, and would do it right. And so that always was helpful in those moments where, you know, finding the right language was particularly challenging. Um, and even with the research process itself, you know, it's hard to read um, hour after hour after hour, day after day um, in the archives, God awful things, you know? Uh, and in the South, um, where I was doing most of my research, you know, you would, I would leave the archive and then there'd be like a Confederate monument on the, on the road, on my way back to wherever I was staying, or there would be the names of streets and the names of towns that were, you know, then that, that were as someone who studies this history, I knew who those people were and what they did. Right. Um, and when I drive around, you know, South Carolina, for example, I know the names of very small towns in South Carolina, not because I spend a lot of time in small towns in South Carolina, but because I know lynchings happen there. Right. So there's just like this, the ever presence of that was often very difficult. Um, especially because everyone else around me didn't necessarily know why someone would be upset by, you know, going by Barnwell, South Carolina, right? You know, so I think that there's ways in which, um, you know, one of the most difficult things was having to, to not um, fall into a kind of despair about human beings <laughs> and this country, um, given the, what I knew of the history and the ways in which it felt so absent from public discourse in these spaces that I was traversing every day. And so you spoke about the relationships that you developed with um, descended communities and um, direct descendants of the victims. So can you also take us into how you cultivated those relationships as well? Because um, I think obviously that those relationships play a central role in your ability to tell these stories. Yeah, I was I, I was um, very lucky. I'll say um, I my my uh, advisor did a bunch of oral histories for his book on C.L. Franklin. And so it was kind of in the back of my head that, oh, that's a thing I could do. People are still alive. I could maybe do some of that. So I made sure I got, you know, the IRB approval and had like a release form and stuff like that before I went and did my research, not because I had like a plan, <laughs> but because I thought maybe something might come up and maybe I should be prepared. Right. So I had like a digital recorder and things like that. Um, I ended up um, almost always uh, finding people to talk to through some other intermediary who kind of was there to vet me essentially, even if that's not how they would maybe necessarily understand their role. And so for example, in Southern Georgia, there was this community organization called the Mary Turner Project. And so I just reached out to the uh, organizer who was at the time, he was a professor at Valdosta State and um, told him about my research and said, I was, I, you know, I was on the weekends, the archives are generally closed. So I couldn't do research in Atlanta that weekend. So I went down to Southern Georgia to see the site of, uh, of the various sites of lynchings in Valdosta and Brooks counties. And since I was down there, I, you know, wanted to see if I could talk to him. And he put me in touch with um, people like Robert Hall um, and uh, Willie Head Jr. and Audrey Grant, who um, were either 
um, alive uh, to see a lynching um, in its aftermath, really, um, or could tell me stories about um, how lynching impacted their families. And it was through that kind of process, which again, was not necessarily like a clear plan that I was able to uh, connect with people to interview. Um, sometimes it was my uh, one of my other advisors at Cornell, uh, Robert Harris. His brother-in-law is James Reed, who told me the story about the face in the courthouse window in Carrollton County, Alabama. And so I, you know, he was reading my dissertation chapters and was like, you know, my brother-in-law has this story you might want to hear. And when I, after interviewing him, I like found a series of um, books written by white, white folklorists that told the same story, but from a very different perspective. And so, um, you know, I, it was a lot of it was just these kind of like people trusting me to then put me in touch with folks who could tell me these stories. And, and that, that, again, I feel very lucky um, to have encountered um, people who would trust me and then to have people openly tell me their stories. Yeah, that's, that's, that's always the thing. And, you know, like we spoke about this before as someone who does um, more 18th, 17th and 18th, uh, 19th century history, you can speak to descendant communities, but no one with a direct relation, unless they tell them a lie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I don't think nobody living that long. You know, I don't think it was living that long, but um, it, I think your answer to me just goes to show, you know, once again, the importance of, you know, just sometimes you being connected to the right people um, mm -hmm. or if by this example that you just mentioned, the fact that your own advisor's uh, brother-in-law has, you know, this uh, a direct connection to that you could tell a particular story can literally shift the entirety of a project or by virtue of a chapter or, or a series of other stories. Um, and through, through the book, you know, your, your final chapter is on the blues. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I think the, the last couple of uh, questions are going to be very much about that. Um, and so, you know, you obviously speak uh, a lot about the, the blue sensibility throughout the text and, and mm -hmm. even through some of the uh, answers that you've provided today. Um, but for you, what does holding a blue sensibility mean to you personally mm -hmm. And also just the nature of the entire project and all the other work that you do too. How does the blue sensibility inform your own work and, and your own life as a person? Yeah, um, I, I'm, a, among other things, definitely um, a Baldwinian. And um, James Baldwin's uh, way of talking about the blues and the uses of the blues, um, I think provides such a powerful way to kind of think through what it means to live with the sensibility of the blues. Um, he says, you know, that um, what the blues recognizes is that death is inevitable, that suffering is a part of living. And in response to knowing that, facing that, confronting that, um, you don't just give up. <laughs> Instead, you find a way to make all of that livable. And I think a lot of times in this country, and this is what Baldwin says as well, um, we have a tendency to turn away from the reality of 
the terrible things that have happened here and that often are continuing to happen, um, that we want to ignore the fact of death and the fact of suffering. And for Baldwin to live is to know and to deal with and to find a way through the suffering. And I think that that's kind of, um, and it's not because the suffering is the only thing in your life, right? There's joy and you're kind of making room for other things in your life by do by, by kind of confronting it. Um, but I think that that's the way that I approach what it is that I do in my scholarship. And it certainly is what um, informed my writing of this book. I think it's very important when we tell stories about African-Americans that we recognize the real history of this country, but that we don't reduce what happens to Black people as what white people are doing to them, right? I, I think that that's that tendency just you lose so much and you give too much to the oppressor. You give too much room to the oppressor. And so I, I think that the, what the blue sensibility encapsulates is a recognition that um, as blues artists might say, life is a low down dirty shame. It's a recognition of that, right? But that there's something that you can make of that and you can get through it. And that second part of that story is really what I wanted to do in this book. And that's what I see as what's so centrally important in studying African-American history and culture, right? It's thinking about what it means to make life livable. And in terms of making life livable, um, that's a great segue to contemporary resonances uh, with your work. So um, can you also talk to us a bit about... Um, how the survival strategies that you um, discuss and then you recover in, in, in the work, what can that help us do to cope with 21st century examples of lynching as well? Yeah, I think that uh, one would um, think that given that blues music has kind of uh, been... <laughs> It's been passe in some ways within the black community since like the 1950s, let's say, you know, like rhythm and blues and soul and other things, you know, kind of kind of replaced it in many ways as popular music. And where you often hear it is going to be, you know, at, at kind of white driven folk festivals a lot of the time. Right. Um, and so there might be a, 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 a kind of, I think, a misunderstanding of the blues that makes it, that ties it too closely to the music itself. Um, and that makes it seem as though it doesn't speak to our moment right now. Um, but I do think that what the blues can provide as a sensibility, I love blues music too, but like, you know, as a sensibility, what I think it can provide for us in the, in the present is that kind of um, strength and in the face of uh, the difficulty, um, and also the protection that it offers as well. Uh, I think in particular for vulnerable communities, um, the protective nature of the blues, the misdirection of the blues, the double entendre that gives you plausible deniability of the blues remains very, very important. Um, you know, you don't want to expose yourself completely to attack. And so what the blue sensibility allows is a very, sometimes a very tempered um, assault on, you know, uh, injustice. And I think that that's particularly important um, today, even though one would hope that a much more open, overt, direct, 
challenge to white supremacy would be the primary way in which we operate. I do think that's part is very important, but there's also um, an element of deception, misdirection, protection that we also need to hold on to as well. I mean, we don't live in times that are um, safe, right? Um, And so I do think that that's important to to hold on to. And I think this is a great way for us to end too in terms of of holding on i'm someone who holds on very dearly to playlists and to you know because i'm the kind of person i like it's it's hard for me to work in pure silence i to like to have something and so with that in mind um can you actually curate for us in my soul as a witness playlist that speaks to you and speak to the to, to the essence of the work. That, that that's both a wonderful and a difficult question. Um, I think <laughs> that I there's, that. <laughs> I think that there's the the, the, the kind of easy way out would be to look at like the songs that I talk about in the book, um, uh, and I so I do have uh, references to like "Steal Away," which is a spiritual, not a blues song, but it um, if if we take James Cone seriously, which I do, when he talks about the blues as a secular spiritual, I see the connection there. So I would maybe start with something like Steal Away, where again, you have that plausible deniability. (laughs) You're talking about salvation, but you're also talking about, you know, bye, I'm out of here. I'm going up north, you know, peace out, right? Um, And I think that I would also then have to bring in, you know, some of the some of the other songs that I talk about, um, you know, I, I write about um, both the Big Bill Brunzi and Sister Rosetta Tharp versions of Trouble in Mind. Um, there's uh, Big Mama Thornton's Goodbye Baby, which is a wonderful song that is devastating if you just listen to, if you just re- read the lyrics. But it's like this upbeat dance song. Um that I think tells you something about the blues, right? Where you might be like heartbroken, angry, frustrated with this man who has now cheated on her, right? But she's going to dance it away. She's going to sing it away. Um, and, and there's something about that that I really love. Um, I also write about B.B. King's Nobody Loves Me But My Mother, and there too, there's like a little joke in the song because he says, and she could be jiving too. So like, she could also be messing around with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and I would have to put in some Mississippi Fred McDowell. Um, his way of playing with a bottleneck does things to bend notes that is just incredible. And so that would be definitely um, another artist I would I would include. Um, I have a I don't talk about him in the book so much, but the special place in my heart for uh, Ray Charles and I do love Etta James, um, who are again are but aren't blues musicians, but definitely in that tradition. Um, and I really do love Sunhouse. Um, I love muddy waters um there's something about that really low gravelly voice of um of uh of uh why am i forgetting his name now (laughs) 
Um, not Uh-oh. Mississippi John Hurt. Uh, he's, he was up in Detroit. Um, he sings a song called, uh, oh, it'll come to me in a second. I was just thinking about it this morning. Um, <laughs> but he sings a call, song about Jesse James um, and just has this like really low growly voice. Yeah. That's just uh, beautiful. Um, so I would definitely include those songs on there but i think that there's uh yeah it's it, the, the blues um is i think really expansive if you want to define it in that way so i you know I, I think it can include things like even you know moments of gospel moments of funk you know there's things in james brown that do things that are funky like the blues so mm-hmm. uh I, you know i would probably include some of that in there but um and lightning hopkins for sure. Good. Well, that is one heck of a playlist, and you know, we'll have to make sure uh, someone curates it for us, uh, <laughs> so it's accessible on on all the platforms and and such. And so, um, Dr. Crabtree, this has been an amazing opportunity. I'm I'm glad that we can finally uh, sit down and break bread. Saw you um, in Charlotte at AIHS a few weeks ago. Um, it's wild how quickly time flies. I think that was what like two or three weeks ago, give or take, or something like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm glad that we could um, sit down and chat about your new book, y'all. And and this, once again, is Dr. Uh, Madi N. Uh, Crabtree, who is an associate professor of African-American studies at the College of Charleston. And we've had the opportunity to talk to her about her, her brand new book, uh, My Soul is a Witness, The Traumatic Afterlife of Lynching, published by the Yale University Press in their New Directions and Narrative History series. And y'all, if y'all enjoyed this episode, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, we got to know how we doing. So y'all got to review it. Please do, please do. Um, And so, Professor Crabtree, once again, it's been my pleasure to have you on. And if you have any parting words, let the people know. Well, I just want to thank you again for having me on. This was a really um, interesting and fun conversation to have, despite the subject matter being a bit heavy at times. Um, but thank you very much for the uh, the conversation. Of course, of course, y'all. And until next time, New Books and African-American Studies co-host Adam McNeil, like I always say, over and out. <laughs>